Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. The book of Isaiah and the rest of the Old Testament, a major theme of the Old Testament is, if not the predominant theme of the Old Testament, is that Israel is God's covenant people. This is what we see in the Old Testament. What we also see in the Old Testament is that Israel is guilty of two major sins. Now they commit a lot of sin, but they can be put into two categories. One is they are guilty of idolatry. They go after other gods. They are really prone to just go worship idols of gold, idols and gods of other nations. Uh, the Israelites are guilty of child sacrifices. They will sacrifice their babies in fire to the God of Molech. Um, and these are supposed to be the covenant people of God, but they do some atrocious things. So Deuteronomy 6, we talk about Deuteronomy 6 a lot as the Shema, the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But it's also a chapter later on about how they are guilty of idolatry. But they're guilty of another sin as well, and that is a sin of social injustice. Now in church history and in, in the pulpit, we've talked about for years about how, Israelite, how the Israelites, the nation of Israel, that they're guilty of social injustice. The last couple years now we have this phrase social justice that has been imported into our language. These are not the same things. We're not talking about, we, we don't equate social justice with the buzzword of the last couple years with what's going on with Israel. Same language, two completely different things. They were truly guilty of some severe social injustices and, and the, the indictment of, of that is in Leviticus 19. And another major theme in the Old Testament is the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel and all these prophets, they're constantly calling the people of God back to repentance, back to right relationship and covenant with God. So it's just this, this vicious cycle of Israel throughout the Old Testament of returning back to God, repenting, God restores them, and then they fall back away. They fall into idolatry and it's just this, this terrible, vicious cycle. About a thousand years before the time of Jesus Christ, after the death of King Solomon, Israel had revolted against the leadership of Solomon's son. Solomon had a son named Rehoboam, and Solomon's son and Israel, the, the, the nation was split into two kingdoms. Israel was in the north, it had Samaria as a capital, it took ten of the twelve tribes. In the south was Judah, and it took two tribes, and it had the capital city of Jerusalem. And Israel in the north would last roughly about 200 years before they fell to the hands of the Assyrians. Judah in the south, and typically we talk about Jerusalem in the south, would last about 350 years. They lasted a little longer, and then they would fall to the Babylonian Empire. And it was in this setting that God used men's, men, prophets, to speak to God's covenant people. And Isaiah was one of these prophets. Now I've preached here just a few weeks ago about Isaiah 6. And just a little bit of a recap, in Isaiah 6 it says in the year that King Uzziah died, this would have been about 740 years before the time of Christ, and Israel had prospered under King Uzziah. Israel was at the very top at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. 
uh, they had worshipped God, they were prosperous financially, it was a good time to live in this nation or in, in Jerusalem would be the more accurate uh, description. But as the years went on in Uzziah's reign, the, the nation of Israel or the nation, the, the city of Jerusalem in that area would be in decline. Isaiah writes, much of Isaiah is about how God will judge the heathen nations for their idolatry, but then it also shows how God calls them, all the nations, not just the Jews, to find salvation in Israel, and in particular, how the nations will find salvation in a future king of Israel. So the book of Isaiah is just like all of the rest of the Old Testament in that it is about Jesus the Messiah. Ultimately, all the Old Testament points toward Christ. Isaiah is really three books rolled into one. You have Isaiah 1 through 39, you have 40 through 55, and you have 56 through the end of the, uh, end of the book. And there's a lot of discussion about did Isaiah write all of it? Um, or that was there more than one author? Um, this is not the time to get into all of that. But the second part of Isaiah, uh, what we would call, you may say, second Isaiah, if it's looked at as three books, chapters 40 through 55, is what we're focusing on this morning. This second book of Isaiah, what it is, it is a collection of poems and songs. It is centered around a figure that we call the suffering servant. So the suffering servant is at uh, the front of the idea of this second book of Isaiah. And we find ourselves in about the sixth century before Christ. Israel had been in captivity for 70 years under Babylonian rule, and now this small group of people, about 15,000 people, would trek from Babylon, which is Iraq, would be modern-day Iraq is Babylon. Modern-day Iran is Persia. So when you read about Persia in Scripture, that's Iran. When you read about Babylon, that is Iraq. <clears throat> so they're coming from Iraq back to Jerusalem. About 15,000 people have to trek across the desert sands and they're going to rebuild Jerusalem. And what, what's going on in their, their mind, and we know this from the writings of the Old Testament, what's going on in their head are, are things like, surely God has forgotten about us. You know, we broke our covenant, we transgressed against the one true sovereign holy God and surely we are no longer bound by God's covenant love. Like we've broke the covenant, God is finished with us. He's forgotten about us. And here's what Isaiah does. Isaiah uses this brilliant imagery to say that just as a mother doesn't forget about her child, and just as a man doesn't forget about his lover. This is, this is Bible. Isaiah says a mother wouldn't forget about her, her child. A man doesn't forget about his lover. This is at the forefront of their minds. And he says, neither has God forgotten about you. And people understand that. That's, that's the reason why we use symbolism like that is because everybody can relate to that at some extent. You know, everybody, hey, I've been in love. That person's at the front of my, uh, my mind. Or for all mothers, hey, you don't, you don't forget about your, your children. So the writer begins his second part of Isaiah, now this is not 53, this is earlier on in, that, in the beginning of the second part of Isaiah, by saying, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So this is, a, this is kind of a peace offering that God is offering to His people. You are still my covenant people, I still love you, you've 
committed atrocious, horrible sins. You've been punished for that. You've been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, and now you're coming back to rebuild. It's a time of restoration. So in this second book of Isaiah, the founder of the Persian Empire was a guy named King Cyrus, and he's focus of the much of the writing of this part of Isaiah. Now, unlike the barbaric Babylonians who came in, sacked the city, carried all the people of Israel away, uh, we have the story in the Old Testament of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and you know they won't bow to the idol, and so they're thrown in the fiery furnace. Uh, Persia and Cyrus doesn't operate that way. When Cyrus would conquer a kingdom, he would respect the culture and traditions and religions of the native people. And so when Judah, Jerusalem, was captured by the Babylonians, then Cyrus came in and overthrew the Babylonians. That's why they get to go back to their homeland, because Cyrus comes in and actually topples the Babylonian Empire, thus allowing the people of God to go back to their homeland. The prophet would write about Cyrus in Isaiah 45, and he would use messianic language to tell us that God anointed King Cyrus. Now notice this. He's speaking about a human king, a heathen king that's not a believer in God, but Isaiah says God anointed King Cyrus to subdue the nations and to bring salvation throughout all the nations. Now we know that King Cyrus was not our Messiah, uh, that there would be another one that this pointed to that would come and fulfill all of the messianic promises about Christ and reveal himself as the true King of Kings and the true Lord of Lords. But it was true that at the same time that Jesus Christ the King was being revealed, another revelation was taking place the revealing of the identity of who that suffering servant in Isaiah 40-55 through 55 is. What is this mysterious identity? Well, it's revealed to us when Christ is revealed in the New Testament. They all understood that's what Isaiah was actually talking about, that Christ is the suffering servant. So in the writings in 40-55 through 55, in what we'll call 2nd Isaiah, there are four songs in this 2nd Isaiah. The last of the four songs, if you've been around church a lot, if you haven't, you probably wouldn't recognize it. If you've been around church, you may recognize these verses. This is the last of the four songs of the suffering servant, and it's Isaiah 53, and I'll read in verse 3, just read verses 3 through 5. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our, our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And it is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. If you read, I want to invite you to go to chapter 42. I think it's good to see this in the text. It's a little bit of a lengthy reading, but meditate with me about what this is saying. Because Isaiah 53 is the last of the songs, the four songs. Isaiah 42, 1-9 this is the first of the songs of the suffering servant. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Here's that idea of social justice, but in a 
biblical and right setting. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a fainting burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Our world is crying for justice. This is the justice our world needs. It can't be brought on from any other place than the person, the identity of the suffering servant. That's the one that will bring true justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlines wait for his law. Thus saith God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. It's a, it's a song, a beautiful song of, about Jesus Christ in the book of Isaiah. We talked about this in our Bible study Wednesday night too. We said, remember in the New Testament, when they wanted to preach from the Bible about Jesus to prove from Scripture about Jesus, they couldn't go to the New Testament because it didn't exist. It wasn't a thing yet. All they had to go to was the Old Testament. So they preached Christ from the Old Testament. And if I can get you to see anything and ask you to see anything is that I want you to see Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Jesus is not a New Testament only figure. Jesus is the figure of the entire Bible. So if you look at verses in, in chapter 42, what we just read, if you look at verses 6 and 7, in verse 6, in verse 6, it's, it, we read what Paul teaches and it echoes what Paul teaches about how we receive the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says in their case, this is talking about unregenerated lost people. In their case, the God of this world... Who is the God of this world? Well, in this section that Paul's writing, the God of this world is Satan. So if you read it, if you see it in your Bibles, it uses a lowercase g to denote this is who he's talking about, the God of this world. Elsewhere, Paul calls Satan the prince and power of the air. He's not sovereign, but he has been given temporary rule in this world. In this case, the God of this world, this is how spiritual warfare works. You want to know how spiritual warfare works, the Bible tells us. He has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. This is why you can't debate people into salvation. This is why you can't, this is why great oratory skills and, and uh, rhetoric, you can't convince somebody, that, oh, you know, yes, I, I convinced them that, no, no. They're blind, and unless God opens up their eyes to let them see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, there is no salvation. Thank God He does that. In verse 1, in going back to Isaiah, all of this language, of course, is referring to the, the servant in verse 1. Behold my servant. Well, behold my servant is Christ. In verse 6, the covenant is being given through this servant. And in verse 7, 
the gospel is being foretold. And in 2 Corinthians, one of the great things about the book of 2 Corinthians is that the gospel is now here among us. The Old Testament prophesied, Paul says it is now here. Only Jesus can open up the blinded eyes. I believe God wants to do a new thing among us to reach people with the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And I thank God for what He's done so far. I think everybody in this room today were portraits of grace. We are portraits of the grace of God, but God is not finished with them yet. Money and success doesn't open blind eyes. Morality doesn't open blind eyes. Religion doesn't open blind eyes. We need a move of God that shines the gospel light into broken marriages and abusive relationships and people who are dealing with addictions and people who are dealing with suicidal thoughts and just to shine into the lives of people that if they were even honest with you would say, you know what, my life's pretty okay. I'm actually not dealing with anything bad. I'm doing just fine. It is the greatest curse of secularism. I've thought a lot lately about what our biggest challenges are in a church trying to reach 21st century America with the gospel. And two of those biggest challenges are, one is secularism. It's not the, secularism doesn't try to reject God, it just doesn't have God as a category. It just, it's not even a conversation. And two is materialism. And we live in a very materialistic, not just nation, but our area. Like we are, we are at the center of, of what it means to be materialistic minded. Uh, and, and those are things that we, we drive against. And the message is, is that money and success and, and none of all those things, they don't open up blind eyes. It takes the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. The second thing that God does through the good news, through the gospel, is that He promises that His Spirit would be poured out. Now we've talked a lot about in the New Testament, the Spirit of God being poured out of the New Testament. I want you to see how in Isaiah it talks about how the Spirit's going to be poured out. So Isaiah 44, I'll just read five verses of Scripture. Isaiah 44 verse 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and Jeshurun, who I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. That imagery really meant something to those people. And we talk about droughts, but if we have droughts, you probably aren't worried about where your food's going to come from or if you're going to have a drink of water. Those people did. They lived in a very dry region. So anytime there's a promise of water, they understand how significant that is. I will pour water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry land. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call in on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. It is a foretelling of the Holy Spirit coming. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It's not a thing. A lot of times we say the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit is, a, is the person of God. It is the manifest power and presence of God. And, and please don't complicate it beyond that. It is simply the Spirit of God revealed and manifested in our lives. It's God's nature. God's nature is Spirit. And His most fundamental attribute, which is holiness. God is holy. 
It is the Holy Spirit of God. In Joel 2.28, and it shall come to pass afterwards, this is Old Testament, I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, and even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2, and everybody looks around and says, these people are drunk. Uh, and they literally meant these people are intoxicated the way that they're acting, filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter says, these are not drunk as you suppose, but this is that that was prophesied by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes what I just read. It shall come to pass in the last days I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And even on the servants I'm going to pour out my Spirit. When the Holy Spirit was poured out for the first time in Acts chapter 2, Peter recognized what was going on because Peter is saturated in the Scriptures. He knows his Bible. They knew that the Old Testament declared that God was going to pour out His Spirit. There is a need for a supernatural awakening. There is a supernatural revival from hell that's going on right now. The Apostle Paul has been going on for thousands of years. The Apostle Paul said the sign of the Antichrist will be even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. In Revelation 16, when the sixth vial is poured out, John sees unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Now, this is all symbolic. Um, but he's seeing symbolically what actually happens in the real world, that these unclean spirits coming out like frogs from the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of false prophets. And John said, For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. If you study Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, you'll find that Paul teaches that the powers of darkness are actively at work in people who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. And he calls these people the sons of disobedience. There is a demonic realm and it is at work in our world. And you only need to read the news to see that it is at work in the sons of disobedience. So how does Satan work? Satan works by influencing people who are unregenerated and through their actions and through their decisions, that's how Paul says they work. And so we see it at work in the sons of disobedience who make the headlines daily because they too are filled, they're spirit-filled. They're spirit-filled people, they're just filled with the wrong spirit. We as the people of God are spirit-filled people also. But once where we walked in darkness, now we walk in the light of the gospel of Christ. So Paul writes, among whom also, I love these verses because he's describing all of us. This isn't the guy, this isn't like, this isn't me, this was you when you were a sinner. Paul says, no, this is we, all of us. We all had in our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. All of us, we were by nature, born in sin, shaped in iniquity, even as other people. But God, that's where everything hinges. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, He has quickened us, which means made alive. He makes us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved. 
and He has raised us up together, and He makes us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul says you currently now sit in heavenly places. There's one place in the New Testament where Paul writes this phrase. He says, you are sitting, we all, we all are sitting in heavenly places. And he's writing it from prison. He's sitting in prison. And, and Roman jails were not concrete pads with bars. They were pits. They were holes in the ground. You didn't, Paul did not get tried and sentenced to prison. Paul got tried and got his head cut off. Prison is where you went before you were tried. Their system didn't work like ours. So Paul is an innocent man awaiting trial, and he's sitting in prison, and they're, they're, they're filthy. I mean, they, just, they would throw food into these pits, and there was no sanitation. There was no restrooms. I mean, it's, you can read just the, the horrid conditions of what a Roman jail looked like. This was not three square meals in a cot. And, no, no, no. Completely different idea of what jail looked like. Paul is in this setting for the gospel. And he writes, we're sitting together in heavenly places in Christ. It's it, it just, it, it's amazing to see, to see that. Because it tells us, it's relevant to us to say, it doesn't matter where your situa situation's at or what you're dealing with, you're sitting in heavenly places with Christ. That's the reality of your situation. The reality of your situation isn't that you're going through this, you're going through that, because that's all temporary. You are seated in heavenly places with Christ. We are spirit-filled Spirit-led, God's Spirit, it, it really does. It fills our lives and our hearts and our minds and it dwells in us to transform us into His image. That's what the Spirit of God does. It makes our words and our actions pleasing to Him. This is sanctification. This is what it means to become like God. God, how does your Spirit every day change me into where what I think and then what I say? and what I do. That's all very relevant for our sanctification. There's a verse in Scripture that talks about how the heart is, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but the heart is like a reservoir of water and the tongue, the mouth is like the dam. And we know, how do you know what's in a person's heart? It's by the words that come over their lips. Uh, it's, the verse is, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so it's, it's not using per se the imagery of, of water and of a dam, but that's the, the, you could relate that, is when the reservoir is full, the dam is there for the overflow. It's why it exists. It's flood control. And, and this is what happens with our words. Out of the abundance of the heart, when the heart is full, whatever the heart's full of, it pours over the overflow, the spillway of the tongue. And that's how we know. And so that's why David says, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, because David sees this. David sees the connections between heart and actions, heart and speech. We've got to have the Spirit of God working among us. We must have His anointing. I've never ceased to be amazed at the talent level that resides in churches. Uh, just incredible talent. Some of the best musicians and singers I've ever heard that never get on airplay exist in churches. I, mean, I would put them up against uh, anybody that's in secular music and say, I think they're better than them. Uh, I have friends of mine that, that are like that. I think, well, you know, why aren't they recording? I mean, the, the talent level is, is incredible. And a lot of famous singers and musicians, especially in decades past, in certain genres of music started out, you know, everybody talks about Elvis Presley and he's one of the examples, but there were so many more that got their start in a church. 
But all of that is meaningless if the anointing of the Holy Spirit is not present. Talents without anointing will only cause flesh to glory in His presence, and God hates that. He says it in His Word. I will not give my glory to another. Talent under the anointing says, don't look at me, look at Him and glorify King Jesus. I, pay, I played drums in a church for 25 years every week. Sometimes more than once a week, but I played drums every week for 25 years. And I would be self-conscious at times that I felt like, you know, I'm just a performer. Like, this is a band, right? And so I would intentionally, I would start, I'd be playing the drums and I would say to God, while I'm playing the drums, okay, God, this flame is for you. This triplet's for you. This paradiddle's for you. This single stroke's for you. This double stroke's for you. Uh, all of this, uh, all that I'm doing that, that every other type of drummer is going to do, but I'm doing it as unto the Lord. I'm doing it as praise. I'm doing it as worship. You know, I'm, I'm writing this symbol right here for you. This crashes, this crashes for you. And I did that, I did that for 25 years. Uh, I don't know that I did that early on in, in, playing, in playing drums in church. I started very young, but uh, eventually I think there came a time where I said, you know what, this is going to be more than a performance. Uh, you, you've got you've to play as unto the Lord. That The way it becomes worship is that everything we do is unto the Lord. I think you can handle your finances and it be worship. Lord, I handle this as unto you. I think you can do hobbies and enjoyable activities and, and just things that are completely secular that people who don't know God do. But you can say, Lord, I'm doing this as unto you. I'm doing it with a, a heart towards you. And it can become acts of worship. So we do everything under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Being Spirit-filled isn't just about being used by God. It's about being empowered to be more like Him. Being Spirit-filled means loving your neighbor, forgiving those who offend you, giving when you don't get the credit. You give and do something and nobody knows. Why? You don't care because it's unto the Lord. Sometimes some of the greatest ministries and greatest gifts are unto the Lord. And I close with, with this. And I'm not going to uh, <clears throat> I'm not going to go deep into this for time's sake. It would be the, the last third of this sermon, but for time's sake, I'm just going to touch on it briefly and read these verses. Isaiah 45, 20 through 25. We have talked so much about this in the last three months that I, th I think we've covered it, but I want you to see that it is in the Old Testament as well as the New. Isaiah 45. verses 20 through 25. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivor of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Here is that idea of idolatry. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God, and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said. And here's where I want to draw your attention, these last two verses in closing. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, 
are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. There is that idea of justification in the Old Testament. The act of being declared righteous by God is not just a New Testament idea. The salvation of the offspring of Israel, which is us, I don't have time to go into it, but Paul makes a whole argument about how we, the people of God, the church, are the offspring of, of Israel. We are the children of Abraham. We are the children of promise. It's not now to the, the Jews. Jews aren't saved today because they're simply Jewish. They have to have faith in Christ. We are, uh, elsewhere in the Bible it says, we're the branch that was grafted into the vine. The Gentiles, people who were not Jews, are grafted in. We're justified regardless of race or any other qualification. We have justification in Christ. We do not stand before God righteous by our own works. Thank God. We all have bad days. There's a real bad understanding of, of the Bible and how God works. If you have this really lousy day and you've just you've not lived up to the expectations of a Christian. God does not operate on a turnstile door just kind of moving in and out. So, well, you had a good day today, I'm, I'm in, and today I'm out. And, and hopefully if I return, you know, when the Lord returns, hopefully someday He returns when I've had a good day. Otherwise, I'm out. Salvation doesn't work like that. You are in Christ through the righteousness of Christ, not your own righteousness. So it's not a license to live sinful lives. We want to live lives that are pleasing to God. Live right, yes. Live moral, yes. Pure, yes. But not as a way to be saved, but as a response to the grace that already saved us. Jesus' sacrificial death was on our behalf. He was the substitute that stood in my place and took the punishment of my sin into His body. Jesus, who is fully divine and fully God, turned the wrath of God into the favor of God. And this is why Paul can exclaim, if God be for us, who can be against us? God is for us and we have the favor of God, all because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I close by asking just two questions. How are we manifesting the life of Jesus? Because that's what we're called to do. We're called to manifest the life of Jesus. And how are we being led of the Spirit of Christ? And how are we walking in the Spirit every day? Those are questions only we can answer to ourselves, but they're worthy questions. How am I living my life fundamentally different from the guy, from the lady down the street that knows nothing about God? How am I conducting my life fundamentally different? Not so different that we go cloister ourselves in a commune in the middle of the wilderness somewhere, Say, we're not going to live anything like this secular world. It's, it's too tainted for us. No, we get up and go to school and go to work and have hobbies and live lives. We all do things like our neighbors do. But how do we do them and process it in a way that's honoring to God? I think those are worthy questions. And I think that as we ask them, His Word and His Spirit will give us the answers. Let's pray together. Father, thank You this morning for Your Word. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Forever, O Lord, Your Word is settled into heaven. And I know this morning that Your Word is already anointed. Your Word tells us about itself that it will not return void, but that it will accomplish that which You have purposed. And we take comfort and solace in that this morning. Lord, today I'd just like to pray a prayer of peace among us, that we would rest in You, 
that we would find our comfort in you, that we would not live under condemnation. Your own word says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that condemnation has been destroyed and that we live a life that is free, a life that is encouraging, that has peace and love and joy and uh, attributes of our life that may not at all be connected to the circumstances in our lives. We may be dealing with issues that it makes no sense that we would have joy, but yet we have this joy in our hearts that is unspeakable and full of glory, and we thank you for that today. I ask you, Lord, that as we start this week today, on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, we start this week, we started out with an expectation that you were going to do the mighty and the miraculous among us, that you would fill our lives with grace and truth, that you would bless homes and families here today. I pray for unity here today, that you would minister to us and bring us back next week as we are worshipers and disciples of Christ Jesus. In your name, amen. God bless you this morning.